Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. Towards the end of last episode, Dr. Teresa Peterson told me about some of her views regarding the reclamation of Indigenous lifeways. It has struck me that there were two key elements that I wanted her to tell me more about. Language revitalization and food sovereignty. We've already gotten to learn about why she believes language revitalization is important. On this episode, we'll begin where we left off and cover the second topic, food sovereignty. Well, I think think people say this often, or at least I hear it often now, is that Food sovereignty can really be defined as the ability to feed oneself, the ability to feed Mm -hmm. people. And, you know, so that means the ability to grow your own food Mm -hmm. and not have to be dependent or reliant upon something outside. So I have this kind of joke, like I'm an avid, I think you've been to my place before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to your garden. Yeah. So I, I like to, and then, you know, of course we supplement with, lots of store-bought things as well. Sure. But I have often jokingly said, I mean, the apocalypse could come and we could hunker down in below my, <laughs> below my spheres. I got <laughs> yeah, a good stock of things um, to live on. So, yeah. Um, so I think that's that, you know, is the ability to, you know, to do what you can and do it in a sustainable way, um, not just mm-hmm. for the land, but also for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a lot of people ask me that and I'm like, just start, you know, just grow a tomato, start there. I mean, I certainly didn't start at the level that I am now. Um, And so I know that there's lots of communities and food deserts Mm -hmm. um, that's happening and people are limited. And um, I heard an earlier conversation about, um, you know, the condition of soils and how that impacts and how does it intersect with climate change and Mm -hmm. water issues and all of that. Um, Yeah. So that's, there's a lot there, Um, you know, talk about systems thinking and um, how do we, how do we grow food in a sustainable way that nurtures ourself, keeps Mm -hmm. us healthy in mind, body and spirit and um, that keeps the land healthy I mean, they're, it's all intertwined. When she was talking about food sovereignty, Teresa mentioned growing food in her garden. So I asked her to tell us more about it. One thing that struck me about what she said, despite it being super obvious once she said it, is the idea that she grows food to eat. I think often, particularly for us sustainability-minded folks, we often abstract away from the foods we grow, and we think about preserving genetics or preserving heritage varieties. We forget that crops are plants that we're in active relationships with. We plant them, protect them. And in return, they provide us all with food to eat. Anyhow, enough of me droning on. Here's that conversation. Uh, yeah, it's been a few years since I've been to your garden, but I remember it being very large and uh, right, like a lot of different varieties that you're growing. So could you just tell us about your garden? Mm-hmm, sure. I mean, I was just kind of chuckling because, well, don't get me started on beans. And then- <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, right, that struck me like, that you might have every kind of bean growing in your garden. <laughs> I know there's many, many more beans that I don't grow. Um, and then also I just kind of laughed a little bit because, I mean, you know, I don't know who's going to be listening to this podcast if, I mean, you know, again, it's all relatively speaking, right? So 
it's large for some people and probably small for others. But um, yeah, we very much grow a diversity of food. I I do. I am an avid bean. I think um, uh, one year I grew 17 different kinds. I've scaled back. I think this year I did six or eight and I figured out um, my my kids grew up, you know, so Mm -hmm. I don't need to grow as much food. And so, and Jason's been trying to get me to scale back just a little bit. And (laughs) um, so I figured out, okay, I could alternate beans. I can grow like six or eight this year and next year I'll grow the other six or eight and Mm -hmm. stock up. And um, yeah, just had some bean soup today with a friend. It was fantastic. Yeah. So there's nothing like that. I mean, I just love having a meal with family and then figuring out, you know, this, this, and this all came from the garden and how gratifying that is and gifting people food. And like, we grew this and yes, it grew from a seed and I hope you enjoy this. And there's Mm. there's just nothing like that. Yeah. I I don't know if I've ever gotten to ask you about this. Like, so how do you decide what you grow, right? Like, mm-hmm. how, like mm-hmm. how do you pick the different varieties? Uh, what are the sources of all those seeds, right? Because yeah. I, I remember just being at your house and there were being jars and jars of beans. Yeah, yeah. I like to put them in those pretty antique jars. I think they look so nice. Yeah. And the beans are so diverse, you know, you wouldn't think of, you know, we have um, all different kinds of beans, different types of beans. So I've been gifted beans. I've also purchased some bean from seed savers. And then, um, and then once I get a bean, I continue and grow my own stock. So I save my own seeds. I don't Mm -hmm. buy, I don't buy seeds anymore. Um, And in terms of like deciding what I want to grow. So I kind of say this to you, it sounds kind of simple, but like I grow food to eat. (laughs) I don't grow food just for kind of fun or for looks. Right. I mean, we, so I pick and choose like, Hey, we really like this bean. Um, I might grow a bean to keep the stock around just in case, but I really choose beans to like, they're like, I have some favorites that, um, that uh, are really prolific. They produce a lot. They're easy to shell. Um, one of the beans I cooked today was a, it's called, um, contender and it's from the Carolinas and it's a, you know, an heirloom indigenous bean. Mm -hmm. And I really like it because when you cook it, like we cook a lot of bean soup, um, it doesn't break down and turn into mush. It holds its bean, um, you know, structure. And, um, I like that. I like that in a bean. I don't want to just eat a bunch of mush unless I'm making like hummus or something. Right. Um, so yeah, I have beans that are good for hummus. They'll have a good nutty flavor. The teppery from the Tahona Odom yeah. people. Um, yeah. Uh, black, the Hopi black turtle is a, a great black bean because it cooks up really quickly. Yeah. And I kind of got into, I heard this, uh, I don't know if it was an article I read or something, but this guy was talking about, um, healthy living. And he was saying, uh, if everybody would just eat beans every day, that would like eliminate all the diseases or something. Really amazing <laughs> that he said. And um, anyway, I just like them. They, they, a lot of them look like beadwork. They're just gorgeous. Um, a lot of different variety. And then I always just think, somebody told me this too, about some of the beans, like they'll have tested them for antioxidants and they're just like off the charts in comparison to like a bag of beans you buy in the store that are really grown for production 
Yeah. So um, I just think about that when we're eating, like how healthy something is. Yeah. So I don't grow just beans. I do, you know, grow all the, you know, tomatoes and onions and peppers and squashes and corn. And um, I like, you know, again, to do all the um, as much heirloom varieties as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I do remember when we were there last time, maybe you were having a conversation with, uh, I remember you're having a conversation with someone about like corn and like whether it was like a, a sweet corn or a flint corn and like talking about the different varieties of corns you were growing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, this last year I did. So that's the other thing. Cause you know, of course corn po- cross pollinates really easily. So yeah. I, um, again, because of garden space and then where we're at, we have three, uh, you know, plate, um, the garden is protected on three sides and, but so I, I grow, um, you know, this last year I grew sweet corn. Well, now next year I'll grow, um, our Indian corn. Mm-hmm. And so I alternate, um, I know one year I grew popcorn and it didn't cross pollinate with another corn. So I thought that was interesting. So <laughs> that's the other thing. Gardening is such a big experiment. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And so you just kind of figure out what do you like best? What tastes good? Um, you know, what grew well, what was hearty? what holds up, what, um, what, you know, like what types of garlic, you know, last longer than the other, you know, all those type of things. Um, it's really a lot of fun. But the other thing that we do is we like to also forage and we tap trees for maple syrup. Um, mm-hmm. just had pancakes the other day. It was really good. I put, um, well, I do this just about every morning, have yogurt with um, some of our maple syrup and then add the fruit in and you know because we know good plain yogurt has the i can't even pronounce it bifidus whatever that big long term that has probiotics in it well that gets killed when you're adding all that sugar into it so oh i didn't know that yeah so i get just the plain and then i add that little maple syrup in um and it and it hasn't been you know processed with all the chemicals in that talking about gardening of course led Teresa and i to talk about food But before we listen to that conversation, I thought I should take a moment and mention something. More specifically, in the next clip, I reminisce about eating pashtayapi at Teresa's uncle's house. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with Dakota cuisine, pashtayapi is a sort of traditionally nixtamalized corn that's treated with wood ash. I'm not exactly sure how the chemistry works, but because the ash is an alkali, it makes the corn more digestible and thus allows folks to get more nutrition from it. However the chemistry works, the pashtayapi was delicious. Now, back to the conversation that I had with Teresa. Well, it's interesting you're talking about kind of the foods you make. Is like, right when I I think of you, I often think about uh, cooking because I remember having I don't I think it was like your uncle's house or something and having like pashtayapi or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, it seems like your family really is. There's a lot of those kind of old recipes that are preserved in your family. Do you say more about those? Yeah. So my uncle is the one who's um, you know passed these seeds down to um, myself, and then of course I hope my kids all. Um, assume gardening at some point. Yeah. Um, two of them just became homeowners. So I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, they're talking about gardens. So that's good. <laughs> but yeah, in the meantime, I mean, um, my oldest learned how to uh, harvest and then braid the corn and then make bashtayapi. Mm-hmm. So I know he's taught some people how to do that. Um, and it sounds like Morris is continuing with that tradition. So I'm grateful for that. Um, yeah. So we like like making making that um it's a longer process so it's kind of i I do it more on special occasion Mm -hmm. um because it takes 
takes almost a day to to make that soup. Yeah, we definitely like to cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a it's really fun to just like kind of go in your pantry and um, tonight we're having spaghetti and meatballs and you know so I pulled onions and green pep frozen green peppers out and garlic and said here put my husband's making it right now for me making the meatballs and yeah go to our pantry and pull out our spaghetti sauce and yeah it's fantastic. Is it is it like mostly stuff that you grew? Like the, oh, yeah, with the yeah. stuff. all stuff I just we grew. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so do you like consciously think about like as a parent teaching them to garden, teaching them about like indigenous foods and like <laughs> thinking about how that ties into culture? Or is it just something that happened? I would say it was an evolution. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I grew up on a farm um, and not like the big industrial farms you commercial farms you see today. Right. We grew up on a you know small acreage. We grew um, raised hogs, um, and I grew up helping my mom in the garden. And mm-hmm. my mom, um, you know, canned everything. I mean, everything. We yeah. raised chickens, and she canned chickens even. <laughs> so um, I'm really grateful for that experience. I mean, I would say that is the roots. And um, and then of course, you know, you go off to school and you eat a spaghettios and probably drink too much beer and. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you stray from some of those roots for a while. And then I think when you have children, you kind of start coming back to that. Or at least that was my journey. Right. Um, you really start thinking about how you're feeding your children. Right. Like I think probably all moms maybe do. Um, so, yeah, I can remember. I actually have this picture of my oldest where he planted his first um, pumpkin patch and he was just ecstatic. Um, you know, so those type of things you hope take root. Um, but it definitely, like I said, um, I didn't start out growing this giant garden and you don't, you start out small and then you just keep going and you run into people. And, um, I've been blessed with lots of seeds gifted to me and I've learned a lot, including from my dad, um, and from my uncle, just about, you know, all the science that goes on behind gardening Mm -hmm. and food. So, and of course you learn from trial and error too. Food seems to me to really engage people. There's nothing about it. Like um, I hear it again and again with our students, right? The Particularly our native students, right? Like they're, they're really interested in learning about like traditional food ways and like learning about how to grow things and like, or foraging. Foraging seems to be super engaging for a lot of our students. So mm-hmm. I do think it's an interesting, right? So like, that's why I often think like, Food sovereignty is an interesting framework to think about equity and think about education because mm. uh, it's, it seems to me that a lot of food sovereignty isn't just about having the presence of things, but like having skills, having sort of knowledge, having right, kind of cultural understandings of the uses of different plants and animals and how to, how to engage with the land in certain ways. Well, and any, everybody can be at the table. You know, everybody has something like a food story. Um, everybody can learn how to cook. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody can learn how to grow something. And so to me, it's, um, it's a, it's a place where everybody can come to the table. Everybody's included. Yeah. So, um, when you're doing like some of the language revitalization stuff, do, do you use food to approach that? Cause I'm, I'm going to remember, like I have visited like Dakota with Chohan and I'm just trying to remember, I do remember seeing like, 
worksheets with like food on them. But like, I don't know if that's just like, right. Like when you're just teaching names to things that are like one of the things you start with is food or is there like something deeper? Like are there like deeper connections between like food and language when you're teaching? I think that is actually a really um, great place to, you know, intersect language with. I can remember when our children were little and we were, um, you know, broaching language and, I think they're still in our shed. We had the kids um, draw pictures of the foods they were growing, the seeds and things like that. And then, um, you know, teaching them the Dakota word. And um, and then we put those in the garden. So, um, and then I remember even we made little placemats. That was an activity that uh, um, our our resident Tui um, um, had us do. So we made placemats with the kids and that was all in Dakota. So, I mean, definitely, um, all in our language tables, you know, really coming around food. Um, you know, and that's probably core to a lot of cultures, uh, you know, coming around, you know, breaking bread together. And that definitely, um, that ability for us to take care of each other. I love Ella Deloria's work and words around the, um, Dakota people took care of each other around, um, you know, around food. And, um, you know, that's one of our, I would say our, uh, one of our paramount, um, values of caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Around food. Yeah, absolutely. Being a good hostess and, um, gifting and sharing our food and not letting anybody go hungry. I think that's, that, um, is a core value. I tend to end the conversations that I record for Just Sustainability by asking my guests whether there are any topics that I've left out that they'd like to talk about. When I asked that question to Teresa, this is what she said. One of the things I really wanted to share um, when I was thinking about um, our upcoming conversation was how do we bring people to this conscious place of um, equity and sustainability? Mm-hmm. And so this afternoon I was kind of thinking about um, an activity that I, I um, borrowed from a colleague when I was teaching yeah. and I had, um, I, as a homework assignments, I, I had our students um, spend time, spend an hour minimum with a tree. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, um, it was really challenging for people it was really interesting and and then of course I had them journal and and um, as I was reading through them it was interesting because so many people were I I don't want to say they were angry but they were just really it caused so much um almost anguish for them to have to do that they couldn't understand um, why at first they would need to do that. Um, and then they were also kind of paranoid or concerned about what people would think if they saw them sitting by a tree. <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, it was really interesting. And then of course, as you continue reading, it opened up um, the door for people in so many different ways, whether it was like, a recognition of needing to spend more time um, on, you know, mental health or mm-hmm. mending a relationship or um, recognizing their relationship with the land and wanting to spend 
um, you know, some conscious time and like cleaning up the environment, mm-hmm. um, addressing anxiety. And so it just created a space for people to really ground themselves and a, kind of assess where they were at. And okay. then moving forward. So it was, um, it was really, I think, um, a, a good exercise. And I think it's a place that all of us could spend some more time on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, definitely it's a window for thinking more deeply about inclusivity and sustainability of ourself and our environment in our relationships. I think this might be a good place to end this episode and invite you to all go outside, find a tree, sit for a while and ground yourself and reflect upon how we're related to the world around us. Thank you for listening to just sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the environment at the university of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.